Well, good morning, Greenwich, and welcome to the Wednesday, March 10th edition of the Basement Academy. Uh, we have more wrestling in store today through some great questions uh, that have come in. Uh, let's begin with the morning psalm, uh, one we've read before. Love this psalm, Psalm 130. Very appropriate in the season of Lent. Uh, it is one of the pilgrim psalms as they were making their ascent up to Jerusalem uh, for the worship festivals. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Amen. So it's a simple confession. Out of the depths I cry. Just my, if you kept a record of sin, Lord, who could stand? I couldn't stand. None of us could stand. But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you're feared or honored, respected, worshipped. And then this, this posture, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word, I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. And then for emphasis, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Both, it, 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 it symbolizes or, or signifies the attentiveness. So in our confession, in our acknowledgement of need before God, the, the watchman, the one who stands guard over the city at night on the kind of the, the sentinel uh, on the city walls, waiting because the, the, the fear would be an attack at night, right? When the, the town is asleep. And so the watchman is vigilant, alert, attentive, but the watchman also knows that the morning will come. So there's a watchfulness against any predator, any attack, but there's also a hopefulness. The watchman waits for the morning. I know it's coming. And so that, that leaning forward. So this anticipation, this attentiveness before God uh, in our sin. So the Lenten experience of acknowledging our need uh, before God is real. And we wait for Easter, right? So we know it's coming. We know it's coming. So yeah. Okay. <clears throat> A couple more questions. Um, the first has to do with these situations in the Gospels. Uh, the, the question here cites Mark chapter 7, verse 31 to 37. Jesus heals a deaf man and then commands him or orders him not to tell anyone. So what's up with that? Okay. But the more Jesus told these people not to say something, of course, they go out. And so in, in the Mark passage... Jesus commanded them uh, not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. <laughs> so what are you going to do? So, so the question, it, it's really a bundle of, of questions, all thematically related. 
you know, am I missing something here? Were there any consequences to them speaking? Were the healings reversed? To our knowledge, no, we don't have anything about that. Did more terrible things happen to them for disobeying the command of Jesus? Again, we have no, no information. Um, is it okay sometimes not to obey the commands of Jesus? No. <laughs> it, do not willingly give yourself to disobedience. We do disobey, but do not willingly give yourself. Um, was this a shy Jesus making this command? So, so what, again, what's, what's the reason Jesus would tell people not to speak of this great thing that the Lord has done for them? And then I like the last question that I'll interact a little bit with. What do I do with these stories today in my daily life of trying to follow Jesus? Great, great question. So let, let me try to kind of take, take the bundle this way. Um, scholars have identified this pattern or phenomenon in, in the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Mark, and that the term that they use for it is the messianic secret that somehow Jesus was trying to keep his identity as Messiah a secret. Not, he didn't want the word out. In contrast to what we typically think of as Jesus is trying to get the word out, we try to get the word out about Jesus. And so the, the, this idea of the messianic secret, it was a much more popular understanding or thought in the um, kind of about a, the last century. Um, the, 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 not everybody who's a Bible scholar is a believer in the sense that I think we aspire to be or I encourage you to be. To believe these words to be the Word of God that God inspired through His Holy Spirit these, uh, these individuals to write, that these are the words God wanted us to know, that divine authorship's involved. So not everybody who is a Bible scholar is a Bible believer, okay? I don't, I don't mean to, I'll just say it that way. <laughs> not everybody who goes to church believes this stuff, right? Um, and so not everybody who gives themselves to biblical study believes this stuff. And so some of the messianic secret idea is that Maybe Jesus wasn't thinking of himself as Messiah, but the early church, they, they wanted Jesus to be the Messiah. So, because there's a whole strain of thought that the scriptures really are the product of a community that was trying to make Jesus into something that he wasn't. Okay. And so there's, there's many who, who, who believe that. Uh, many who believe that Jesus did not rise from the dead, and so these stories are made up that, you know, the, the early church concocted this notion of the resurrection. So, so I think the Messianic secret, some, some of the writing that if you were to do some research, you know, poke around with this, you'll find some mixed voice about it. But it's the same question that people are addressing that, that the questioner brings here. Why? Why would Jesus tell people not to talk about this thing? It's a fair question, and, and it's, I think it's, a, it, it's perplexing. My take and my understanding is Jesus knows the mission, his mission, okay? 
He understands his identity. Um, I mean, at least as early as 12 years old, he has some awareness, right? Did you not know that I would be in my father's house when, when Joseph and Mary can't find him after their pilgrimage to Jerusalem? On their way back, where's Jesus? And so they rush back. They, they, they ask about it. So Jesus is there in the temple speaking with the scholars, and they're amazed at such learning for a 12-year-old, right? So we have to assume Jesus understands his messianic identity, his messianic mission. He understands that he's going to the cross. Um, did he understand that as a two-year-old, as a four-year-old, as a 12-year-old? We're not sure, but God the Father made that known to him, such that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is then wrestling if there's any other way for this cup to pass. And when he's teaching his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to be handed over to the chief priests. He's going to be put to death. On the third day, he will rise. So he says all that. Now, some Bible scholars don't think Jesus said that. They think that was imported you know, by the, the later community. I believe Jesus said it. My take is that since Jesus knows his messianic mission, that he has to go to the cross, he knows that opposition and hostility are going to come his way. And in fact, some of it comes really early. That that the reason he he tells these people in the healing not to go spread it about so much is that he doesn't want the action that has to, to happen, that's going to happen, this, this, this confrontation, you're a blasphemer, you're making yourself out to be the Messiah, you're making yourself out to be equal with God, all of the things that the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees charged him with, that's essentially what got him um, in front of Pilate, right? They, they essentially are saying, you're a blasphemer, you're, you know, you're a carpenter's son, you know, and your, your, your parentage is a little you know, little in question. We know your mom was, was pregnant before your mom and dad were married. You know, that, that would have been known. So this hostility opposition is going to come. Jesus knows that. He doesn't want it to come too quickly because he has things to do in those three years. He has a, a community he has to train. He has to disciple the disciples. He has to make apprentices. And so this three-year process of calling uh, these, these men to himself, this apostolic community, they need to come to grips with who he is. They don't understand at first who this guy is. And so, so I think that's it. To, to conceal the identity so it doesn't, get, it doesn't get ahead of himself, okay? Because there's this other work that has to happen, the training of the community. And it wasn't just the 12, and really one was a rat fink, you know, Judas. But there was a community that gathered around the 12, okay? So it wasn't just the 12. There were others such that after... Jesus is uh, raised and ascended. Judas has hanged himself. They replace Judas with one from this larger community. Okay, they cast lots and, and they replace him. So, so I, I think that's the deal, that he doesn't want to bring the fight too quickly. He can't go to the cross prematurely, if that makes sense. Um, so in the developing of the apostolic community then, over time, it turns into get the word out, right? 
and and so um, so I, I think that I think that's kind of my answer. Um, what what impact or how what does this make make for our daily life? Um, I think we can give thanks to God for God's sovereignty that the action didn't come too quickly that uh, he didn't go to the cross at the year of en- the, the end of year one. It was in, in year three uh, after the apostolic uh, team had been built and uh, you know they had become convinced um, and they were willing then to lay down their lives for him, which ultimately they all did. Uh, all the apostles at some point um, were, were martyred uh, for, for their witness. And so we give thanks. I think one way is to give thanks that God knows the timing of things. God, God has a sense better than we do of how things should unfold. And so, so I think we can ask God, so in my life, may your perfect timing for my life unfold as it did in Jesus' life. So that's one way of, of perhaps thinking about this. We are in the age of proclamation and testimony, whereas that might have been an age of uh, silence or circumspection, if we could say it that way. Um, so we're now in the age of proclamation, so it's appropriate for us, to give, for us to give our testimony of all the good things that God has done for us. And so, so let us be open and bold about that. And yet, I would offer the pastoral caution, beware of making your testimony of, of all the good things. If God has done something dramatic in your life, witness to that, bear witness to that, but also beware of not sharing your testimony to be seen by men. Sadly, that happens sometimes in the Christian church. In our weakness of flesh, we sometimes, God does a great work for us, and then we profit from that. We benefit from that. That's the better way. You know, by, you know, going out and making a name for ourselves. Again, I'm probably nobody at Greenwich is doing that, but, but I suspect that has happened along the way, um, where Christian celebrity, Christian megastars, Christian superstars. And of course we see some of that sadly with, um, you know, continuing struggles that, that people high, higher profile Christians have had, God has done a great work in their life and then they uh, form a significant ministry and then they struggle with uh, uh, moral failure and then it brings discredit certainly to themselves, uh, to their families, and then to the gospel. And so maybe there's some circumspection with our testimony at times. It's okay just to let God do something, show, show you something, and then just to thank him for it, Right. And so at times we should bear witness, at times we should hold our tongue and simply give our thanks to God for the good work he's done. So so let me let that be that answer. Um, next question is really, uh, again, kind of a, a bundle of, of questions, and it's really a follow-up to the um, study from March 1st, okay? So going back uh, to the beginning of previous week, uh, the, the opening, that that question about um, would God ever grant a petition to one who was stuck in a hopelessly sinful lifestyle? And I, I, I said, I hope so. And, and we talked about the dynamics of sin and I, the, the, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Um, 
And there I made the reference to the Luther, Martin Luther letter about beware of aspiring to such a purity that you do not wish to be seen as a sinner because Christ only dwells in sinners. And then, you know, did Luther say, maybe he didn't quite say it, sin boldly and go to the cross boldly, but it's this idea. So so the question that came is is kind of in that um, uh, in that line. So I do not understand where it would be better for me to sin than not to sin. So so it's it's a little bit of gentle pushback to what I was saying. In the Lord's Prayer, we say, lead us not into temptation. We are asking not to be tempted because if we are tempted, we will surely sin. Okay. So am I suggesting, you know, was I giving in some way a, a license uh, to sin? Um, and was I suggesting that if we don't sin, that somehow Christ will leave us? You know, that, that Luther letter, um, uh, beware of not wanting to be a sinner because Christ only dwells in sinners. So if we don't sin, then is Christ going to leave us? So, so great, great set of questions. It's really more of a, it was more of a narrative than a, than a set of questions. So let me just try to respond to this way. First of all, no, I'm not encouraging sin. So don't the the, the notion isn't you know go off and you know ha- have a party, have a sin party. Um, the Apostle Paul wrestles with this a little bit in the um, in his letter to the Romans. Uh, what uh, this is Romans six. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. It's th- this idea because some were hearing Paul that this gospel of grace, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. He had just gone through a fairly nuanced and complex argument about. As sin entered the world through one person, that is Adam, so Christ as a second Adam, so righteousness or redemption comes through one person. And so he's contrasting first Adam, second Adam. And so it's this, it, it, it's kind of this notion, well, if, if, if sin becomes the occasion for God's glory to be announced through grace, well, why wouldn't I sin all the more? I mean, goodness, if, if, if my sin gives God an opportunity to demonstrate his grace, God should thank me for my sin, right? Because, you know, my sin gives him an occasion to be seen as a benevolent uh, God. You know, he himself will, will redeem Israel from all their sins. To God be the glory for all of his grace uh, and his forgiveness in my life. <clears throat> so that's not... So, so I, I think the, 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 the questioner rightly picks up on that tension, and there is tension there. The antinomians, that's the kind of the, the scholarly term for these folks, anti against nomos law. The antinomians are the ones who are saying, hey, you know, why, why be restricted if, if, you know, uh, if, if it's all grace, then then forget the law. Let's just go live any way we want. And then God has forgiven us or will forgive us. And there are antinomian impulses that we all have, right? We would wish to be a law unto ourself. That's the original sin and in the garden. And so the antinomians are saying, you know, kind of forget 
the law of God. Uh, I can do whatever I want. So Paul is, um, Paul labors in the Romans letter. I don't want to get into it because it's a, it's, it's kind of hard to follow when you just read it out loud. You got to tease it out. But he's saying, no, we, we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We are to mortify the flesh, okay? I think we spoke about that in our theology series as well. Sanctification is what we're talking about. This process of laying aside patterns of behavior, patterns of thought, patterns of affections that we have that are inappropriate. The transformation of all of that is what's called the sanctification process. The spirit weaning us away, you know, convincing us that we are not God, you know, to, to not be the, the, the determiners of good and evil, and then to find ourselves in, in, in a humble, submissive relationship to God, okay? So we die to sin, die to self, we, we live to Christ, okay? <clears throat> I think what I was trying to get at last week and, you know, make, a, make another run at it now... <clears throat> We are sinners. We will never not be sinners this side of heaven. Okay. Um, we will, that the other side of heaven, sin will be fully separated from us. We will be unable to sin in heaven. Okay. That, that's good news, friends. We will be unable to sin. All of that possibility will be removed. We will be fully sanctified. We will be glorified is, is the technical term. But until then, we will be sinners. <clears throat> we will never not be sinners. And so the danger is in thinking that we can fully set ourselves apart from sin on our own or even through the sanctifying work of Christ. We, there, are, there are Christians who believe, it's called Christian perfectionism, that we can somehow live a perfect life. It's available to us this side of heaven. I do not subscribe to Christian perfectionism. I, I do not believe that. Because I believe sin is so deeply embedded, it, it blinds us, it darkens our understanding, there's futile thinking, there's, there's different ways the scriptures talk about it. And so sin is so deeply embedded. So we tend to identify certain behavior, certain actions um, uh, as sin. So again, the, 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 you know, drinking too much alcohol, smoking cigarettes, um, uh, dancing, playing cards, you know, worldly activities. Those are, are, are familiar um, sins that, that a previous generation would have lifted up. Uh, today we might talk about, uh, you know, too much screen time. Um, you know, we talk about pornography, things like that, you know, the, the sins of the eyes and of the flesh in that way. Rightly, we would identify that. Uh, it's the sin of racism, okay, those kind of things. But now we're talking about attitudes we have towards other people, and attitudes are so deep. And, and this kind of playing the victim, you know, blaming others for actions that I've engaged in, well, it was the woman you gave me, you know, kind of that, that, that pattern. Some of these things are so deeply embedded in us that, that we are not even aware that they're there yet. And over time, God raises things to our awareness. And so the, the danger in wanting not to be a sinner, which is what I was trying to get at, that, that Luther letter is trying to get at, is becoming proud of our humility. Being proud that we 
have put sin aside from our lives. And so again, beware the testimony that is really about seeking adulation and recognition by men. So that the answer I just gave. So um, sin deludes us into thinking we're better than we are. Now, thanks be to God, we're not all bad, okay? Uh, his grace abounds to us. Uh, we are made in his image. And so we are, as Luther said, there's this, this phrase, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing the Latin correctly, but simil justus, simil peccator. Simil, simultaneously justus, justified. At the same time you're justified, you're made right. At the same time, simil peccator. Peccator is, is sin, okay? The peccadillos, right? Peccadillos. So at the same time we are saints and sinners, at this, at this very moment, I am justified and in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, yet at the same time, I am a sinner today, at this very moment. And so this is the Lutheran tension. This is what Luther was trying to bring out. And this is what Paul, I, Paul it's a Pauline reality. It's a biblical reality. It's a, it's a spiritual reality. We are at the same moment, saint and sinner. Now, at some point, we will no longer be sinner, but we will be redeemed sinners. We will always be the redeemed, okay? And so this idea is embrace the fact of your sin. That's, so the sin boldly is don't pretend you're not a sinner. You are. And so if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you're feared, you're to be worshiped. The point at which we think we're not sinners will stop looking to the Savior, okay? So that's the point there. Sin boldly, that is, embrace the fact of your sin. Even when you can't detect it, Lord, I think I've put aside this and this and this, but I'm sure there's something underneath it. In fact, I feel some pride swelling up within me that I've put aside this and this and this. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I can't even detect it. I need you so much. So sin boldly. That's the Acknowledge openly that you're a sinner. Don't hide it. And see, this is what Christians try to do. We dress up. We go to church. We want to kind of put the facade on that our lives are together and, and pretend that we have it more together than we actually do. And the world detects that. That's why they say, you, you Christians are hypocrites. The Christians are the ones who could never be a hypocrite. I admit I'm a sinner. I admit I'm a hopeless sinner. I can't do anything about it. Sin just flows out of my life. I can't even see it. You can see it in me. I can see it in you, but I can't see it in myself. I can see the speck in your eye. I cannot recognize the plank in my own eye. Okay, that's what Jesus labors in, in this direction, okay? So we're all familiar with the phrase mea culpa, mine is the fault, culpability. So mea, mine, is the, is the fault. Mea, it's a mea culpa. I'm so sorry, I did this. Uh, Augustine wrote, this is like fourth century, Augustine wrote of a different phrase, Felix culpa. It's in Latin, Felix, uh, happy. Oh, happy sin. And, and at first you go, what? And so I think this is what the, the, the questioner is trying to, to get at here. I wish I'd have said this last week. Oh, happy sin, Felix culpa. That is, Happy am I when I become aware that I am a sinner because when I become aware that I am a sinner, I seek the Savior. 
I seek relief from this sin, from this guilt, from this shame. And so Augustine, if you know any of his story, uh, was, was very licentious, okay, very indulgent. And then he became aware of his sin. And he wrote famously his confessions where he details his, his sin. And so Felix Coppola, oh, happy sin, because when I become aware of my sinfulness, I then am stirred to seek the Savior. And thanks be to God, for he himself will redeem us from our sins. He himself, he sends his own son in human flesh that sin may be condemned in the flesh. And so he offers himself. We could never redeem ourselves. We could never set our sin uh, fully out, out of our lives. So we receive the gift of righteousness. The Spirit comes. We begin to behave and think and live differently over time. We, we make some progress in the spiritual life. We die and we are transformed into his likeness fully. And so Lent is the season where we say, oh, happy sin. God, make me aware of my sin. That, that's, the, that's what I say, the sin boldly is, make me aware of this. I am not gonna pretend I'm not a sinner. I am gonna acknowledge openly that I am, and I am gonna cling to that old rugged cross. <laughs> when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, and so all the things that I boast of, I am going to consider them as nothing compared to knowing this redemption. So I think that's what I'm trying to get at here. Let's not pretend. Because pretend and pretense are right next to each other, right? In meaning. Pretend is, oh, we act like, you know, this is a thing. And so pretense is acting a thing that I am not, right? But it's, 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 it's an attitude that I carry myself with a, an air of pretense. Like, like he thinks he's a little better than he is. And so the Pharisees, they, they were full of, they were pretentious. They, beha- they acted as if they were all together, and they were full of dead men's bones. You are whitewashed graves. You are the blind guides, the blind leading the blind. You, you tithe uh, your spices, you know, the 10th of your dill, mint, and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. And so, and so it's the, 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 the sin of the Pharisee is always next right right next to us. That's why that parable last week, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee is, is the genius parable because there's something in us. Thank God I'm not like those people. We, I do that all the time. You do that all the time. We don't even detect that we're doing it. And so it, it, it pops up in political discussions. It pops up in cultural discussions. I can't believe those people who canceled Dr. Seuss. I thank God I'm not like those Dr. Seuss cancelers. That's the sin of the Pharisee right there. So everybody who's been screaming about, you know, they've canceled Dr. Seuss and they're mad at Dolly Parton and whatever else, you know, is happening. You've become the Pharisee. Thank God I'm not like those people. Do you see it? And so sin boldly is, oh my gosh, I was screaming about the Dr. Seuss canceling and I just became the Pharisee. God have mercy on me, a sinner. So I'm gonna, I think I'll wrap up the, the, um, the, 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 the reflection there. But Felix Culpa, 
If you've been screaming about Dr. Seuss being canceled, there are issues there to be aware of. Maybe that's for another day to, to talk about. But it's the attitude we have towards other people that then when we become aware of that, maybe just at this moment, you go, oh my gosh, I now see it. Oh, happy sin. Felix Culpa, run to the Savior right now. And so let, let's turn to him in prayer. Lord, have mercy on us sinners and how we thank you for the fullness of your promises that you yourself, O oh God, will redeem Israel and this world from their sin. And so help us to cling to that old rugged cross this day and every day and help us to acknowledge openly, oh, happy sin, for that is the day that I began to seek and know the Savior. And so come with your Holy Spirit, continue that good transforming work in us. And our hope is that you will bring to completion that work which you have begun through Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray and who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. May God keep you and bless you through our Lord Jesus Christ and his gracious Holy Spirit, now and forevermore. Amen.